here with uh, Heather Litzman, and I'm just having a chat to her about her lovely poster, uh, talking about unmet treat-to-treat goals with available targeted immunomodulators in the management of rheumatoid arthritis. Heather, thanks so much for speaking to me this morning. Really fascinated by your findings. I wonder if you could just summarise what you found uh, in relation to uh, patients who are non-responders even after intervention with biologics. Um, yes, so uh, we, what we found was that about um, half of the patients that, or we found half of the patients that had been treated for at least six months, um, we're finding that, uh, you know, about 84% of the patients um, were not in, not in the LDA, had been continuously treated with um, TIMS, and, you know, even of that, about 35% had been on three or more TIMS, um, you know, sort of indicating that, you know, there's could be the need for better implementation of the treat-to-target, um, you know, goals within, um, meaning that there, you know, may be some unmet need out there. And the that's great, Heather. And I th- we discussed earlier. I think that fits really well with our thoughts that we know of how the biologics have worked really well in some circumstances. But you've obviously identified some patients in whom there's there's more to be identified. Do you think this might be via a biomarker, or do you think there's a clinical kind of scenario for this? Um. You know, I think it's probably a combination of, uh, you know, of both. Um, you know, it certainly sort of indicates that there, you know, may be, you know, more that we could do for the, for these patients. Um, you know, and I, I think there's different mechanisms to sort of, you know, get to that yeah. <laughs> in yes. the end. Yeah, it's, it's a vast area where there's so much we still don't know. Um, so what's your uh, next goals in terms of your research and study, Heather? Well, I, th- I think, you know, this is definitely ongoing research and, um, you know, we'll continue. This was based on the Corona Registry and, you know, we're continuing to, you know, look at the data and, um, you know, sort of figure out, um, you know, next steps and, and look at new therapies and see how they're working as well. So, It's really great work. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Morning. I'm here uh, with Lucia Dominguez, uh, chatting to her about her research into trying to identify some of the factors that uh, uh, predict whether patients might become infected or not uh, post-RA and some of the biological treatments. Uh, Lucia, thanks so much for speaking to me this morning. We're really grateful. Uh, Super work that you've done here. I wonder if you'd just uh, help me summarize uh, what was your motivation for this study? Uh, first of all, thank you for the interest of my work. And we wanted to, in our hospital, we wanted to analyze what were the uh, risk factors for patients with rheumatoid arthritis to um, suffer from infections, uh, um, uh, serious infections that make that the patient have to be hospitalized. I don't know. At, 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 go to the hospital. Yes. Yeah. Hospitalized. Yeah. So, sorry, <laughs> sorry. And we want to know too if the treatments, the immunosuppressive treatments, have a role in uh, the increase the risk of these hospitalizations. And uh, we take uh, our patients of our hospital in the north of Spain, in Santander, and we take uh, four, uh, 401 patients uh, between October and. Uh, 2011, no, 2000, no, sorry, see, 2011 and 2016, and uh, we, uh, it was a dynamic cohort. We don't take uh, every patient at the same time. We have, it was like a dynamic uh, cohort to take taking patients in each month or whatever, and uh, we analyzed uh, the um, 
the main features of patients at the beginning of the study, like a rheumatoid uh, factor positivity, the anticitrullinated protein antibody uh, positivity, and uh, pulmonary fibrosis, everything that makes that the, uh, the illness is worse, or have a worse pronostic. And uh, we have, we analyzed these uh, patients, and we have seen that um, vaccinated patients, because we uh, included it in this cohort, after vaccinated patients, uh, we have seen that these vaccinated patients have less infections than ones we have not vaccinated. And to compare with after, before the vaccination program, and we have seen that uh, patients who have received uh, biologic uh, drugs before the vaccination have more uh, risk or have more infections, serious infections, than patients who have not received uh, biologic and other immunosuppressive uh, therapies before the vaccination. Okay, I mean, our readers and, and followers will be really interested in that. So are you suggesting that it would be, uh, for those patients, would have been better off that they'd been vaccinated prior to the biologic treatment commencing? Yeah, of course. We have uh, seen that it, it is important to vaccinate patients before the, the treatment. I, we know that may, sometimes it's difficult because uh, each hospital has his de departments, his way to work, and sometimes you want to... Uh, begin the treatment now, but if it is possible, we want to uh, prior vaccinate and after that uh, begin the treatment to uh, decrease this risk because uh, we have seen that there are patients that die about, um, for these uh, infections and it's uh, important to, to prevent this, that I think, we think that. It's great work. And, and you found a really uh, unexpected finding with the uh, citrullinated protein antibodies. Uh, tell us about that. That's really fascinating. Yeah, we, uh, and before beginning the, the, the study, we thought that uh, rheumatoid factor and anti-citrullinated protein antibodies were, um, I don't know, related with the risk of infections. We have found that the anti-citrullinated, yes, but no, the rheumatoid factor is not related in our cohort, and that's that's amazing for us because these uh, antibodies uh, have uh, 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 the patients with this positivity of these uh, antibodies have worse uh, pronostic in his illness, and normally that makes that they take infections and other things, but we have found that. And it's amazing too that our patients with pulmonary fibrosis not have a elevated risk of respiratory infections. That is like quite strange, we don't know. I, it, I mean, it's great when you look at the data in these ways because it's all very helpful. You could, you would expect. Yeah, yeah. It sounds logical. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's really so. At this point, small numbers in some ways, but it's certainly. And, and could I ask you, is, is that independent of any of the treatment regimes? So the the anti CCP is something to look at whether they've been on biologics or, or DMARDs. Yeah. It was individually. The positivity for this, the positivity for these antibodies, have a, o sea, a elevated risk. But independently of the treatment, anyway, it was like individually this antibody. That's really fascinating. So thank you very much for that. And uh, I understand that you've got some more uh, research in the pipeline. Just tell us where you're taking this next. Yeah. We are um, um, creating, I don't know if it is right, uh, another cohort with patients and non-vaccinated to compare with, between them 
this cohort with the non-vaccinating cohort uh, to know more than that because it seems like our cohort is uh, kind of special patients <laughs> and we have to compare the same patients, the same type of patients, the same localization and to compare this risk. That's fun, fabulous. Uh, keep up the good work, Luthia. We're really, really interested to see and hear what you've done. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for interesting. <laughs> Good morning, Professor Fleischmann. Thank you so much for having a chat with us. Um, it's a really detailed poster, but I think the message is quite clear. Would you explain to us what that is? Yes. So this is, there were two trials of baricitinib that included two milligrams. Uh, one was this trial, which is the RA build trial, where patients could be treated either with two milligrams of baricitinib or four milligrams uh, plus methotrexate or, or conventional DMARD. And there were patients who were on the two if they didn't have a clinical response, would be rescued, right? So the, the, the rescue could be uh, if they didn't have at least a 20% improvement in tender and swollen joints uh, by week 16, they would be rescued. They'd be rescued to four milligrams. Um, if they uh, weren't rescued, they could continue in that trial for the full extent of the trial and then go into a long-term extension, which is RA Beyond. If they're in RA Beyond and they started and they were doing better, but they really weren't doing well enough, they're still on two milligrams. They could be rescued to four milligrams. So what this is looking at is patients who aren't doing well with two, will they do better with four? And to my knowledge, this is actually the first, the first study of any drug where this was looked at in this way, with, with very detailed patient knowledge. So we know that in the double-blind portion in RA build itself, um, the patients who were rescued did have high disease activity, a lot of swollen joints, a lot of tendon joints. That's why they were rescued. And when they went from two to four, they did much better. The patients who were in the long-term extension who had been on two, who were then rescued, which could be the physician discretion, uh, were not doing quite as well uh, 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 as they would have liked but they were doing better than the patients in the original study because they already had had a response. And a, a, a majority of those patients improved as well. So what this study showed was that if a patient is on two milligrams and is not achieving the target they want or the physician wants, there is a very good chance if they're increased to four milligrams, this is plus methotrexate, that they will significantly improve. That's lovely. Thank you so much for explaining that. May I ask you one more question? What's, what are your next research goals? My, my goal? Find a cure for arthritis. Good luck Will with that. It? No. <laughs> lovely to goal. chat with you. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, Good morning, Amma. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Um, I'm delighted to hear you're the uh, director of... Biomarker Sciences um, at Gilead. Thank you so much. Uh, fabulous poster, really, really detailed. I wonder if you'd just talk us through the, the main aspects of your study. No, absolutely. So one of the key things that we wanted to do was to try to deconvolute or try to look at some of the molecular underpinnings of common uh, clinical disease scores like DOS28 and Vector-DA. And it was important to us to actually give a better molecular understanding of what those disease biologies are that are underlying those scores and how those disease biologies are impacted by fulgotinib. So the first thing that we did was we looked at the baseline population. We looked at about 15,000 genes and decided to, to look at you know, how those are correlated with disease severity. 
So of the genes that were tightly correlated with disease severity, and that's actually um, demonstrated by the row score of uh, 0.3 or greater, uh, what we found was that there was a significant subset, almost 600, that were actually modulated by fulgotinib. Okay. So the key uh, message there is that of the disease biology genes that are associated tightly with vector DA and DOS28, a significant portion of those are modulated by fulgotinib. We also then decided to do the uh, reciprocal analysis and looked at those genes at baseline that are changed by fulgotinib biology. So those genes we found um, that almost 500 are modulated by fulgotinib, and we found that 197 of those were tightly correlated with the disease biology scores. Right? So if we now looked at those 197 genes and said, okay, well, what are the pathways that are comprising those genes that are most tightly correlated with uh, vector DA and DOS28? And those are the pathways that you actually see. And what we found was the top regulated pathways, as well as those that are t um, uh, the most negatively regulated. And what we found across the two studies, Darwin 1 Darwin 2, that those pathways are significantly reversed. So if you actually had a high disease biology score in terms of DOS20 and vector DA, and if you look at the genes that are underlying those, those are significantly reversed with treatment with fulgotinib. Really fascinating, and I think just looking at this here, it's it's interesting that your top positives are, uh, I suppose, a broader immunological marker, if you like, neutrophils and leukocytes. Uh, whereas we might have expected a T cell activation, so are they unusual? So what you're seeing is, uh, if you look at the negative correlated genes, right? So remember, these are the ones that are uh, top reversed or impacted by fulgotinib, right? So you would expect T cell biology to go down, and that's exactly what we see. So the highest um, negative decrease that we actually see is in the T-cell activation. Oh, yes, of course. That's, that, makes, that makes perfect sense. Thank you so much for talking us through that. So what impact might this have clinically, and um, where do you think this helps us in the bigger picture of treatment? That's a great question. And so one of the things we're hoping to do is actually to create a better molecular underpinning for clinicians so they understand the molecular biology of the disease scores that they're utilizing. But for us in the future, this actually helps to identify the patients that might best respond to filgotinib and actually identifying those as gene signatures up front before therapy. And that's fantastic. And I also wonder, do you think somehow in all of this huge detail of, of, of data that you've produced, that there's a way of maybe making a biomarker algorithm for responses as well? That's exactly the idea, is that, you know, to come up with a predictive and prognostic biomarker for Fogotinib is our goal. But as you see, um, with the limited number of patients that we have, those are hard to come by. But the idea is that continuing through our phase three trials, we'll continue to gather information and data uh, to impact the field. And you seem to have got vast amounts here, which, uh, you know, once you've, we've unpicked all of this, and that's the royal way, of course, uh, then I think that's, that, that, that is the future goal, isn't it, to be able to uh, whittle down to maybe one or two of these scores that we can use and marks that we can use to identify early responders and, and, and progress. Absolutely. That's the goal. Okay, lovely. Thank you so, so much for talking to us today. Really appreciate it. Uh, and additionally, on uh, the Jack Selective uh, inhibitor, Phil Gottnib, I'm chatting with uh, Professor Taylor, who's got a bit of an editorial comment uh, of how we might use this information. Thank you very much. Well, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Um, so if we think about the biology of chronic inflammatory disease and rheumatoid in particular, and the manner in which we've learned to treat this syndrome in the last 10, 15 years, the contemporary thinking is that we should do something called treating to target. And this means that you look at clinical signs of inflammation and titrate and adjust your treatment with a view to suppressing inflammation as far as possible. 
One of the potential downsides with this approach, however, is that you can actually immunosuppress. If you go on and on escalating therapy, you could potentially immunosuppress an individual, which clearly is not desirable. And so the true biological goal of therapy is to achieve an immune homeostasis. That means to um, take away the dysregulation of the immune system and restore the ability to respond dynamically to the environment around you. And we can't do that yet, and uh, it's not easy to find biomarkers or pharmacodynamic markers that point to it. But the beauty of this work on uh, Phil Gottenib is that by looking at um, a transcriptional profile and looking across a range of inflammatory pathways, we can see that there is this remarkable uh, movement following Phil Gottenib intervention towards a true immune homeostasis. And I think this is a pointer of the direction of travel in terms of optimising therapies in the future to give best outcomes for patients. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, really encouraging and an optimistic thought that we may, might be much closer to that than we, than we may have thought before this, this Congress. The data is compelling and it would suggest that um, certainly this drug, and I suspect there are others, will have some similar capabilities. Super news. Thank you very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Dr. Kibitz. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. Um, really eye-catching poster here on the novel, highly selective SICK inhibitor. Uh, and, and again, you've got some lovely, clear results. I wonder if you, there's a nice take-home message here. I wonder if you'd talk us through that. Sure. The message here is that we're looking at a SICK inhibitor, uh, which was designed to try to reduce off-target toxicity, such as hypertension, and try to see if we could demonstrate efficacy in an RA clinical trial where filgotinib, 200 milligrams once daily, was used as the comparator. And in the results, unfortunately, there was no evidence of any benefit by any clinical parameter, by any ACR 20, 50, or 70, by any change of vectra. There was, unfortunately, no evidence of any benefit. On the plus side, there was no evidence of toxicity, no off-target uh, signaling, um, and the good thing about the study as well is that filgotinib 200 milligrams daily performed extraordinarily well with very robust ACR 20, 50, and 70, uh, robust DAS28 improvement, and also robust improvement of Vectra-DA biomarker scoring. So the model for this particular clinical trial was validated through the marked benefit seen in the filgotinib arm. It is really neat. I think your study design and the validation by including the Phil Gottlieb, I think, is really clever because it, it shows up really nicely in your results. So if, um, obviously, slightly disappointing on the, uh, the sick inhibitor side, do you think there'll be, is there a future here? Do you think we'll be investigating these more? Have you got other plans? This particular sick inhibitor is actually also currently in clinical trials for Sjogren's syndrome. So... I think what happens to this compound will depend largely upon what performance it has in that trial, which is uh, currently underway. Lovely. Thank you so much. Good morning. Uh, I'm at uh, poster 2551 uh, with Rebecca Kunder, who is going to talk us through her findings of the, in this 132-week safety and efficacy study of filgotinib. So filgotinib is an oral once-daily JAK1 selective inhibitor. Um, it is in rheumatoid arthritis, and we do have phase three studies ongoing, but this is really the largest safety database for filgotinib in rheumatoid arthritis. So this study is an ongoing long-term extension study from our two phase two studies. 
The phase two studies were both enrolling patients who were methotrexate inadequate responders. One study was with methotrexate and one was without background methotrexate. Of the patients who finished Darwin 1 and Darwin 2, the vast majority entered into the open-label long-term extension, and in fact, we had 739 patients starting on this Darwin 3 open-label extension. The poster breaks down these patients into those who were on background methotrexate and those who were not on methotrexate, and all of these patients were on 200 milligrams daily dose. Overall, of the 739 patients who enrolled, we do have over 400 continuing, and the majority of the discontinuations were due to adverse events. However, most of those adverse events were actually people meeting protocol-defined stopping rules. We have over 2,000 patient years of exposure, and the median time on filgotinib for these patients is a little bit over three years. In terms of our adverse events of special interest, we do see a zoster, herpes zoster rate of approximately 1.5 per 100 patient year exposure, and that is fairly low and consistent with the background prevalence. We did have one DVT leading to a pulmonary embolus, and that was in the group with methotrexate. Again, with a study this long with patients with rheumatoid arthritis, this is not unexpected. Moving on to the lab data, we were really reassured that we see an improvement in hemoglobin, as a matter of fact. We don't see an increase in platelets. We do, however, see a slight decrement in neutrophils, which is consistent with the overall um, mechanism of JAK inhibitors. We see a slight bump in creatinine, although very few were clinically significant. We actually see an improvement in the total cholesterol to HDL ratio. Finally, we see stable NK cells throughout the study, which is important in comparison to other JAK inhibitors. So moving on to the efficacy data, we do have a consistent and um, continuing high rate of patients with low disease activity. And you can see that there isn't a significant difference between those who are on methotrexate and who are not on methotrexate. We've achieved an ACR 20 sustained in over 80% of our patients with the ACR 50 and the ACR 70 rates being relatively high as well. So in conclusion, in this 132-week data cut of the long-term extension, we have a favorable safety and efficacy profile both with and without methotrexate for filgotinib given at 200 milligrams daily. We're hopeful that our phase three studies that continue to read out will support the safety and efficacy profile and the BioDMARD IR um, um, presentation and poster are occurring right now over in the late breakers. That's fantastic. Rebecca, thank you so much. That was a, a really, really um, neat overview and I know our followers and members at, at CSF will be really interested in that. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.